Welcome to the Legally Speaking Podcast, presented by STBB. A conversation dedicated to answering your legal questions and a platform where our team of specialist attorneys share their expert advice and legal know-how with South Africans. Good morning, everyone. My name is Andreas Tsangarakis. I'm a director in STBB's commercial department. And this morning, I'm joined by my colleague, Adam Ishmael. Good morning, Adam. Hi, morning, Andreas, on this uh, cold and wintry morning. Yeah, good morning, everyone. Adam Ismail, I'm an executive consultant here at STBB in Claremont. And uh, Andreas and I work together in the commercial department and do mainly mergers and acquisitions and uh, related property development work and all the agreements that are associated with that, as well as any other commercial agreements that are needed. And today we're going to talk to you about a class of those agreements. Thanks, Adam. Uh, This morning, we're going to be speaking about the processes involved in the context of a sale of shares. Specifically, this morning, we're going to be focusing on sale of shares in PTY LTDs. It's a profit company, um, and it's a specific category of a private company. So there's very specific uh, legislation which applies to it. For example, if one were dealing with a close corporation or a public company, different rules and regulations apply, and that would be a conversation for another day. So to clarify, this morning's discussion will be on the sell shares within the context of a PTY LTD. Uh, I think that this presentation is quite important because at some point in your life, be it professionally or in your career, uh, you, or sorry, through your personal personal life, uh, you'll most likely deal with shares. And you need to have an understanding on how you realize the value of shares. And this involves an understanding of the rights enjoyed by those shares and the processes and procedure involved um, by such enjoyment. Different procedures uh, may prescribe different values. To give you a relatable example, I'm currently advising on a matter where the client was under the impression that should an exiting shareholder dispose of their shares in the context of a PTY LTD, um, that shareholder must dispose of the shares at a net asset value. When we had a look at the agreements, though, there was no mention whatsoever which prescribed the value at which those shares needed to be sold. So it's very important that you understand what your shares, uh, what the value is attributable to your shares and whether there may be a prescribed methodology uh, which attaches to those shares in the context of a sale. Um, in that respect, one must pay careful attention to source documents of a PTYLTD. The two main source documents, it's the company's memorandum of incorporation, and in certain instances, there may also be a shareholder's agreement. Those two documents prescribe the process uh, that one needs to follow when dealing with the sale of shares. Having said that, there is a misunderstanding I found in my experience that just because I'm a shareholder in a PTY LTD and just because I, I might not have a shareholder's agreement, um, I do have a preemptive right or right of first refusal should my co-shareholder wish to dispose of their shareholding. Now, that is not the case. Okay. In terms of the Companies Act, there is only a preemptive right or right of first refusal which shareholders enjoy on the issue of shares not on the sale of shares by co-shareholders. 
Adam, do you have anything there that you'd like to perhaps mention? Yeah, so, so maybe just to demystify the words issue and sale is if you've got to think about it is an issue of shares are newly created shares that haven't existed before that the company issues to a shareholder and that new shareholder which we will call the subscriber pays for those shares and the money goes to the company whereas with the sale of shares an existing shareholder who holds existing shares sells its shares and the purchase price for those shares goes to the shareholder not to the company so that's the in essence the difference between the subscription and the sale uh, the two also have different tax consequences so when structuring something like this you'd sort of weigh up all the pros and cons uh, and there are, there are different considerations when deciding uh, which way to go thanks adam to elaborate on the sale of shares there are many ways in which share sales can be structured that ranges from voluntary share sales to forced share sales to structured share sales this morning we're just going to be speaking about two of those structures voluntary and forced um, to speak about the voluntary sales um, you know it would be dealt with in terms of your shareholders agreement or memorandum of incorporation and to the extent that a shareholder wishes to sell their shares uh, the shareholders agreement or memorandum of incorporation would prescribe that the other shareholders who remain in the company would have a preemptive right or what's typically known as a right of first refusal over those shares this is a contractual right this does not exist by way of legislation despite popular opinion to the contrary uh, as adam and i alluded to earlier i'd just like to give you a practical example of how a preemptive right works so if adam and i were shareholders in a company adam held 50 shares and i hold 50 shares and adam wants to sell his 50 shares to person x uh, for 50 rand uh, the principle is that before he can sell those shares to person x for 50 rand he must offer them to me for 50 rand and i've got x amount of time in which to acquire those shares uh, if i decide not to acquire them then adam is free to sell those shares to person x now in just in the context of immovable property you know it's it's very it's it, the the principle is very much the same as a right of first refusal which a tenant has when a landlord wishes to sell the property so if the landlord says i'm wanting to sell my property for 10 million and the tenant has got a right of first refusal the concept be itself shares or immovable property the principle is the same mr ishmael yeah so i guess this is where we as the lawyers uh, come in and what is very important is because there's no law that governs the terms and conditions of this preemptive right you've got to draft a clause whether it's in the moi or the shells agreement of this company that deals with all sorts of permutations now for the last hundred years our case law is littered with mm -hmm. cases where 
Various aspects of the enforcement of preemptive rights uh, have been disputed between parties. So what an attorney will attempt to do, and most law firms have their sort of standard preemptive rights clause, is, is to carve a clause that covers every single point that could be a possible dispute. So we've had an evolution in, in South Africa through the years of our company law, you know, sort of starting with our 1921 Act and then the 1973 Act and now the 2008 Act. And I think this misconception that Andreas has spoken about, that sort of everyone has a preemptive right automatically, is probably just a carryover from old laws um, and what used to be called the Articles of Association of a company now called the Memorandum of Incorporation. So once you've decided that you're going to have a co-shareholder within a company, rule one is there must be a preemptive right and you've got to make sure that it's put into one of these documents. And preemptive rights clause could be one page, it could be five six pages the more detailed the better to give you an example one of the standard provisions we put in the preemptive rights clause sort of across the board for most law firms today is that when you have an offer you've got to disclose the terms of that offer to your co-shareholder so that they can consider it holistically it's not just about the price there may be other terms and conditions that's attached you've got to disclose the ultimate buyer you know they may be using some sort of a shelf company but you want to know who's buying it and secondly, that purchase price must sound in South African rand. You know, there has been cases in the past where somebody has offered to buy something via preemptive right and offered to pay for it with something that only that person is, is able to pay with. Adam, I agree with you. And I, I mean, what, what I've come across in practice is a circumstance where the offeror will say, I will buy your shares and in exchange, I will give you an issue of shares in the offerable company, okay? Now that is not a purchase price that sounds in money. So, you know, when it comes to the drafting of the preemptive rights, very careful consideration needs to be given to the detail. Is there anything else there that you would like to mention, Adam? I've got, I've got a few points on my side. Yeah, maybe just to give a ridiculous example is, assume somebody famous wants to buy my shares in a company and they offer to pay for it by making an appearance at my daughter's birthday party. It's impossible to match them. that. That's why it's so important in the Shell's agreement to say that the offer must sound in mm. money failing which it's not a valid offer and if it's Agreed. if it's evidenced by something else you've got to equate that to a monetary value so that the other shareholder can at least have an opportunity to match it adam a few a few points that i had on my end was when drafting clauses of that na- of of this nature one needs to be very mindful of the type of company that one is dealing with and and, and what i mean by that is the operation of the business you know are there overdraft facilities are there all sorts of major suppliers and creditors you know who are the shareholders involved because typically what will happen is in one's preemptive right clause there will be a period of time in which the remaining shareholders are required to exercise a preemptive right in my experience that's typically anywhere between 30 to 60 days if one is dealing with a company which has complex operations where one would need to procure all sorts of creditor and bank-related consents, 60 days may not be enough time for the remaining shareholders to make an informed decision as to whether they want to acquire the exiting shareholders' shares. When drafting those types of clauses, one needs to be very mindful of time periods. If it's a major company with significant value and acquisition by one shareholder of another shareholder's shares may be subject to certain regulatory approvals, such as the Competition Commission or Takeover Regulation Panel. 
And one needs to be mindful of the timing around those transactions. The other thing is in preemptive rights, if you are going to exercise them, one needs to have an understanding as to whether your co-shareholders have waived their preemptive rights or not. If you're a third party who's buying into uh, an existing company and there are two shareholders there, for example, say it's myself and Adam, if a third party wants to buy Adam shares, that third party will want to ensure that I have agreed to waive my preemptive right or not exercise my preemptive right to acquire Adam's shares. The other thing that I found, Adam, in practice, which has become very hotly debated, is you and I are shareholders in a company, and I'm going to use the example that I gave earlier. You want to sell your 50 shares to person X. I've got 30 days in which to acquire them. And sometimes the way in which the preemptive rights are, are drafted is that I can acquire part of your shares. I don't have to acquire everything. Now, that can be quite dangerous because it may very well result in a situation where I buy 25 of your shares for 25 rand. All of a sudden, I have 75%. You left with 25%, which you now want to go and sell to person X. And person X says, Adam, that's great, but I actually wanted to have 50% of the company. So it's not worth my while to continue to make you an offer. So that person sells off into the sunset. All of a sudden, although you've received consideration, you're a minority shareholder now in the company, and I enjoy the majority. Anything on that, Adam? Nothing that sounds right. Yeah. So, Adam, the position that I've adopted in, in, in shareholders' agreements is it's got to be an all or nothing. It can't be this, you know, acquire shares piecemeal. I think that it invites problems. And, yeah, that's 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 the basis on which we've we've dealt with this in, in our documentation. So, again, you know, just to take a step back, this is all in the context of a voluntary sale. Where, for example, Adam wants to voluntarily sell his shares to a third party. There's no particular circumstance which has arisen uh, or which is imposed upon him. He's just saying, look, I think it's a good time for me to liquidate this investment and move on. That's all in the context of voluntary sales. The second context in this, uh, the second context of sales shares, which we would like to speak about this morning, is forced sales, which is also known as deemed offers or bad levers. Again, these are contractual rights. So they're either going to exist in the MOI or in the shareholders agreements. If they haven't been catered for in in those documentation, uh, then they simply don't exist. So let's just speak about some of the examples of what a for sale deemed offer event would be. And again, using myself and Adam as examples of being shareholders in a company, one of the deemed offer provisions that we would typically include in a shareholders agreement, especially where we are dealing with natural persons. So Adam and myself personally, not our holding companies. If, for example, Adam were to pass away, we would typically cater for in the shareholders agreement that that would be a deemed offer event. And Adam's estate would be deemed to have offered Adam's shareholding, which he previously held in the company, to me. And there would be typically a pre-prescribed valuation methodology at which I would be able to acquire Adam's shares and I would pay that across to his estate. Now, there are commercial reasons for the inclusion of deemed offers. And for example, just sticking with, with, with the event of Adam passing away, when I bought into the company that Adam and I held shares in, I bought in and I wanted to do business with Adam. Adam may very well in his will have bequeathed those shares to either his wife or to his children. But, you know, from a business perspective, I come into the relationship with Adam, not with his wife or his children. And for that reason, I want to ensure that they will be fairly remunerated. But ultimately, I need to take control and I would like to pick 
who my business partner is going to be going forward. Now, another example of deemed offers, which becomes very important, is employment. Okay, so you may very well have a situation where you are a shareholder in a company, you want to bring on board certain employees, and as an incentive, you offer those employees shares in the company. Now, that's all fine and well, and the employees now get to enjoy capital and income benefits um, from the company. But should that employee's relationship with the company terminate, there needs to be a mechanism in the shareholders agreement, which is created through the deemed offers, that that employee gives back the shares, be it either to the company, and that is a share repurchase, alternatively to the remaining shareholders. If you don't have a clause like that in your shareholders agreement, you could very well be stuck with an awkward situation where you've incentivized an employee given them shares in your company, for whatever reason, the employment relationship terminates and they go and work for a competitor and they still continue to hold shares in your company. It, it becomes a very awkward and uncomfortable situation. Adam, do you, do you have any experiences in that regard? Yeah, you know, I think what, what could sort of compound matters is particularly where a very senior employee who holds shares lives in acrimonious circumstances. You know, without a clause like this, you give that employee certain leverage in their exit because they hold on to something like this. Uh, and that's why more often than not, when we have these triggers for employees, we try to discern between an employee leaving for good reasons or for bad reasons. And in good reasons, this could be retirement, incapacity during to, due to physical or mental impairment. It could be retrenchment. The deemed offer would sort of happen on, shall we call it, arm's length market-related terms, more or less fair market value. Whereas if somebody leaves for bad reasons, which could include misconduct, dishonesty, any defense that's dismissible under your, your, your company's policies, uh, resignation. They breached their restraint of trade including a breach yeah, of, a, of a restraint of trade, there, there is some sort of punitive measure that's put in place in respect of these shares, meaning the deemed offer kicks in, but at, at, at a discount to market value. And that could be any multiple of a discount all the way to zero. So this, this, this achieves a couple of things. The one is it sort of keeps the employee hyper-vigilant that they've got a lot to lose if they don't play by the rules of the game, but also if they do leave, that them holding shares doesn't become an issue or another sort of bargaining chip uh, in the deal. Thanks, Adam. The other thing that, that I found to be quite important in circumstances of a deemed offer is understanding the valuation that's prescribed to one's shares in those circumstances. Uh, I briefly mentioned earlier that I'm involved in a matter at the moment where I have a shareholder who's looking to exit uh, my client's under the impression that the valuation prescribed in a deemed offer also applies in the case of a voluntary sale. Now, that couldn't be further from the truth. As we mentioned earlier, in the case of a voluntary sale, typically there is no methodology that's applied. It's typically willing seller, willing buyer, and however much Adam can realize what he shares, good luck to him. But in the case of a deemed offer, the methodology and valuation is typically prescribed and it's absolutely critical that the parties understand the valuation that would apply um, in those circumstances. You don't want to have a situation where, for example, 
upon the death of, of one of the shareholders, the agreement caters for the fact that it will be a net asset value methodology when in fact it should be an EBITDA methodology which should apply, which can significantly impact on the value. So understanding which methodology to apply given the business operations of the company is absolutely critical. The other thing is typically in deemed offers, uh, they, they are events which typically creep up on you. It's, it's not something that you would expect. So whilst there's a deemed offer, for example, when, and let's use Adam's case with the employees, you know, the shares could be worth a significant sum. And whilst it's a deemed offer, it still requires acceptance. It doesn't mean that it's a done deal because if for whatever reason the remaining shareholders or the company decide not to purchase the departing shareholder shares, well, that shareholder continues to remain uh, in, in the company. Now, how we've looked to soften that is that we would typically cater for entrenched payment terms in the shareholders' agreements, where we'll say, if, for example, the employee leaves and their shares are worth 5 million rand, we say, look, we're not going to pay you the full, we accept your deemed offer, but we're not going to pay you your full 5 million in one lump sum. We'll pay it to you over a period of 12 months. Um, interest will accrue on it, and you know it will be in equal monthly installments. The reason just being because sometimes, you know, companies or shareholders do not have the cash flow available to finance a purchase. And this just creates a ease on their cash flow and also just gives them a, I think, places them in a better position to exercise their rights in the case of a deemed offer. Yeah, guys, I think those are those are all good points. And then maybe just a, a reminder, you know, because we have freedom of contract in South Africa, mm-hmm. you can contract around anything as long as it's not illegal, meaning you can design this clause for your specific purposes in any way uh, that you want to, whether it's timing, triggers, mechanisms, valuations, and there's, there's a lot of room for creativity here. But one must also be careful not to overcomplicate methods. You know, there's a tried and tested formula on how these clauses work. And sort of as long as you stick into those basic principles, it should be fine. I have in the past been involved in negotiations where parties have tended to overthink these provisions. I'll give you a a, a funny anecdote where an inventor sold a very sophisticated piece of software to a large conglomerate. And uh, I I was acting for the large conglomerate and the inventor was was not only uh, eccentric, uh, but he had a, an overactive imagination as well. And when we were negotiating this deemed offer clause, there was a standard clause that said that if he died, there would be a deemed offer of his sale to the conglomerate. And the comment then that came back is, what if the conglomerate took a hit out on him to get his shares? And we had to draft a clause in that it was only triggered in the circumstances where there was no allegations uh, that it was an unnatural death that could have been some sort of a hit. So there was no precedent for that clause. We wanted to close this deal. We knew it was never going to materialize. So just to keep him calm, we eventually uh, put in some wording. But that's just sort of a word of, of drafting caution. But, you know, this brings me to... You know, what What does that list of triggers for the deemed offer look like? I mean, it, it could be one or it could be 20. How long is a piece of string? Exactly. So, I mean, what are the common ones? Death? 
Def insolvencies, insolvency, or winding up, winding up, breach of the agreements, or the MOI, yeah, or the MOI. Typically, what would happen is there would also be changing control provisions. So, by way of example, we you have a company which is a shareholder. Um, there may be a sale within that company shareholder, which results in a third party controlling that shareholder. So, by way of example, uh, Adam holds his shares in a company through Adamco, and Adam is the sole shareholder. Now, as opposed to Adamco selling shares in the company, Adam decides to sell his shares in Adamco to me. And now all of a sudden, I control Adamco and also have a direct, indirect interest uh, in the underlying company. So typically what we'll do is we'll say, if Adam in Adamco decides to sell his shares such that it gives rise to a change in control, that is also a deemed offer. Because, you know, at the end of the day, uh, I need to know who I'm dealing with, who stands behind the legal entity. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, that's a very important point, Andreas. And I mean, it, it, it goes back to your previous point, which is you've decided to do business with somebody, a human being, or a particular group of companies. And the fact that they may have interposed one or many entities between them and this investment vehicle, it's important to know that if they are no longer there, that you have control of who you're partnering with. But I mean, it's also a very clever way of just bypassing a preemptive right. Oh, absolutely. So we call it grandfather clauses um, because what you're trying to do is sort of protect ownership of that share going up sort of through uh, yes. the holding structure. And I mean, the most common mistake I've seen in drafting these grandfather clauses or changing control clauses is where you draft protecting a changing control just in the shareholder, not bearing in mind that there could be another 10 companies on top of that shareholder. So what is important when drafting these is just a simple word, directly or indirectly creates a change in control because the word indirectly covers it all the way up. And then also when drafting your change in control clause, don't only draft it thinking that there's a company, but there could be a trust yep. as well. And a, a company and a trust looks very different when it comes to what control looks like. Going, going through some other examples of, of, of triggers. Um, I mean, so we've already spoken about the uh, leaving the employee. Adam, I have an interesting one for you. Yeah. I'm sure you've come across regularly too. Is It's a deemed offer where the shareholders agreement, whoever I will say, for as long as this particular shareholder remains involved in the company, um, you know, they will continue to enjoy their shareholding. However, if they are no longer involved, then uh, they are deemed to have offered their shares to the remaining shareholders. And I've recently been to court on this matter where, you know, it was very much left open to interpretation to deal with, but what did actively involved mean? Did it mean that the person was, you know, at the coalface making sales, uh, doing marketing, coming into the, you know, coming in, this particular individual didn't have an employment contract. So his role was quite difficult to to define. We were fortunately we were successful in in being being able to describe what active involvement meant in those circumstances. But I see it's becoming more and more common that people are including clauses in shareholders' agreement to say, well, we would expect these individuals, particularly in the startup space with founders, that these founders remain actively involved in the business. 
And it's absolutely fundamental that one puts that into context. So, you know, what does one mean stay actively involved? Does it mean that you arrive there, park your car, walk in, have a cup of coffee, say hello to a couple of employees, and then walk out and say, well, I'm, I'm actively involved. I've been to this business, say hello to a couple of people and make my merry way and go off for the weekend. Or does it, active, does it mean that, well, you know, I'm going to be crunching the numbers, I'm going to be processing accounts, doing marketing and advertising, and, and generating billable work. Very, very important. Yeah, and then, you know, carrying on through the list of potential triggers, it could be breaches of laws. So what we're seeing a mm. lot of now is where persons uh, breach anti-money laundering right. and anti-terror financing uh, legislation. There's, there's also another innocuous one that comes up and it's also a bit warm and fuzzy so this is where a shareholder causes reputational oh, loss wow. to the company or reputational damage or brings the company's name into disrepute right lovely one to have but so dangerous absolutely how do you objectively determine when and how that's happened i mean somebody could say something really horrible but if no one of any consequence heard it and the company suffered no real damage arising from it, has that clause been triggered? So, you know, be very careful when drafting these triggers. It's got to be objectively ascertainable. And look, sometimes I do understand in order to get the deal across the line, we fudge it and we cross our fingers and our toes and hope that uh, we never have to uh, deal with that clause. But I mean, and as you and I have been to court enough times on these preemptive rights, and you know what it's like? You could spend hours and hours fine-tuning these clauses. The issue that comes up is the one nobody thought yeah. of and it comes up in 10 years' time. Exactly. 100% agreed, Adam. Um, so I think just in, in, in closing, uh, you know, this morning we've spoken about uh, sales shares in the context of uh, private profit companies. Uh, we've spoken about voluntary sales, so where, for example, a shareholder wishes to voluntarily dispose of their shares and there's no circumstance that's been imposed upon them. Uh, we've focused on aspects that they need to be mindful of, other waiver, um, other preemptive rights which shareholders may have, the fact that one needs to have a consideration of one's source documents being the shareholders agreement and MOI. Again, as a reminder, to the extent that neither of those documents deal with shareholders having a preemptive right that right then does not exist and that shareholder can freely transfer their shares. The other, uh, the other context that we've spoken about is deemed offers where there are circumstances which arise which trigger a shareholder to sell their shares. They are obliged to sell their shares either back to the company or to the remaining shareholders. Unlike a voluntary sale, where in the majority of cases it's willing seller, willing buyer, in a forced sale, the valuation is prescribed. So one needs to pay, pay very careful attention to the methodology. And as Adam and I discussed extensively, one needs to be very careful with the trigger events which give rise to the occurrence of a forced sale. If you've got any questions, you are more than welcome to uh, reach out to us. Uh, you can email us at commercial at stbb.co.za and we hope you found this session informative. Thanks for, thanks for your time too, Adam. Thanks, Andre. Thanks, everyone. Legally speaking, this podcast has come to an end. Thanks for joining the conversation. And if you like what you're hearing, visit us at stbb.co.za for more info.